Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Ratings and Reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo or on Twitter at RunPaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Irving Kirsch. Irving Kirsch is Associate Director of the Program in Placebo Studies and Lecturer in Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He is also Professor of Psychology at Plymouth University in the United Kingdom and Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Hull, United Kingdom and University of Connecticut in the United States. His book, The Emperor's New Drugs, challenges the idea that antidepressants are an effective treatment for depression. By looking at the data, Professor Kirsch concludes that antidepressants are no better than placebo. Professor Kirsch, thanks so much for, for being part of the show today. It's my pleasure. So, you know, as I said before we started recording, you know, your book really blew me away. I, I, I had picked it up because Amazon had recommended it to me, and I, I was just so interested in your findings. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this topic of antidepressants and whether or not they can help cure depression? Sure. Well, it started with an interest that I've had for many, many years, and that's an interest in the placebo effect. Uh, when I started looking at antidepressants, it was only a way to look at the placebo effect. I wasn't really interested in antidepressants uh, one way or another. I assumed they worked. I, I was seeing um, clients who were depressed in psychotherapy, and sometimes I would refer them to get uh, prescriptions of antidepressants. But I've always been interested in the placebo effect and the effects that a person's beliefs, uh, the, the a person's beliefs can have on their uh, well-being. And it just occurred to me and one of my uh, graduate students that depression would be a good place to look for placebo effects. People who are depressed are hopeless. When you give someone a a treatment, it's supposed to instill a sense of hope that they're going to get better. And so it made sense that there ought to be a a decent-sized placebo effect in the treatment of depression. And so we started trying to analyze what the size of the placebo effect was in depression. And to do that, we had to get data on people who had been given a placebo, uh, depressed patients who had been given a placebo. Now, where do you get those data? The only place you find them are in the antidepressant drug trials. And so when we got in, in getting data on placebo, we have the data also on uh, on uh, on the drugs. And so we looked at it, not being particularly interested in that aspect of the data at that point. But what we found uh, really surprised me. We found this reasonably large improvement that people on average get when they take an antidepressant drug and a whopping improvement also when patients were just given an inert pill, a placebo, a sugar pill with no active medication in it. And what surprised me tremendously at that point was that the difference between the effect of getting a a sugar pill and, and the effect of the antidepressant was very, very small, much smaller than than I would have expected at the time. Uh, it seemed like most of the response to the antidepressant was really a, re- a placebo effect. And that 
that got me interested in studying antidepressants per se. Okay. You know, that's that's really interesting that that uh you, you actually looked at the data and one of the things that you point out in your book is that the data is not always easy to get to because the drug companies will want to publish positive results and oftentimes uh from what I got from reading your book is sometimes the negative results are suppressed or um sliced and diced in different ways so that they don't look to, as negative as they might be. Um and then there's also cherry picking the data. Can can you go into a little bit about why why it's so hard to find accurate information on this and um and how how you use the Freedom of Information Act to get access to some of the negative results? Yeah, we, when I started doing that again, I wasn't aware of this problem, and it was something I became aware of uh, later. Uh, my graduate student, uh, Guy Saperstein, and I published that first analysis that we did. It's called a meta-analysis, what we've done, where you pool the results of many different trials. And, of course, it turned out to be very controversial. And I received a suggestion uh, from Tom Moore in Washington, D.C., that uh, perhaps I should try to replicate it with a different data set as a way of answering the criticisms that were being raised. And he suggested using the Freedom of Information Act and getting the data from uh, the FDA that the drug companies had sent them. And so uh, he and I did that with some others, and and, uh, we analyzed those data. And it was around that time that I found out about the problem of what's called publication bias. That is, trials that are, are successful tend to get published, and trials that are not successful tend to not get published. And the reason for that is that the um, drug companies own the data. They've sponsored the trials. They've paid to have the trials done. done. They can decide to submit a study, <clears throat> a study to a journal for publication or not to submit it. And uh, if they don't submit it, it just doesn't get seen by many people. It's not publicly available. But when they apply for approval for their drug, they have to send information on all of the trials to the FDA. And so that's why we were able to get access. And that's how we were able to get access to the trials that the drug companies had uh, not published in, in medical journals. And that amounted to almost half the trials that they conducted, 40 percent of the trials that they conducted, about 40 percent, were just never published. Wow. Wow. So from what my understanding is, uh, a drug company could do a trial, say, 10 times. And even if they get just two positive results, they can they can discard the negative results and just use those two positive trials. Is that correct? Well, it's something like that. Uh, What happens is this. They have to send all of the trial data into the FDA. The FDA's policy is that um, what they require is that there has to have been two trials showing a statistically significant difference between drug and placebo before they will approve the drug. And in looking for those two, they don't care how many trials were run. As long as there were two trials that were successful, that means they can approve the drug, even if there were 10 trials done and only two were were successful. And in fact, about half the trials that were done for antidepressants and sent to the FDA, about half of them were not successful. They didn't show any difference between uh, drug and placebo, that is trials for antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the FDA criterion 
for drug approval, having two successful trials, and they don't care about the size of the difference. It can be a very small difference. It can be a difference that's not meaningful in anyone's life, that's not clinically meaningful. As long as, as it's statistically significant, um, they will count it as a positive trial. Okay. Now, a couple of things that you focus on in the beginning of the book is this thing that we need to think about called spontaneous improvement versus placebo and also the drug effect. So we've got you were trying to figure out how much effect does this drug actually have over a placebo? And then you also have this idea of um, spontaneous improvement. I believe you gave the example of someone has a cold and they, they take a medicine to see if the, the medicine will help the cold get better. But uh, most people do recover from colds, so we can't really know for sure if it was the drug or not. Can you go into a little bit about how important it is to understand the drug effect and the placebo effect? Sure. <clears throat> when, when, when you give someone a drug and they get better, uh, it may be due to the drug. It may be due to the placebo effect, that is the effect of believing they're getting an, uh, a powerful treatment, or it may just be the natural history of the disease. And, the, and good example of that, as you mentioned, is the common cold, which tends to remit people get better even if they don't take any uh, medication. So if you want to know what the effect of a drug is, you have to compare it to something. What you usually compare it to is a placebo. You pill that looks the same, um, smells the same, tastes the same, uh, to see what the effect of, where the only difference is the chemical in the drug, so you can see what the what the effect of the, of, of the chemical is. And that's why uh, in medicine, placebo-controlled trials are done. Now, by the same token, if you want to know what the placebo effect is, and that's a question that I'm particularly interested in, you have to compare that against something. Because if I give someone a placebo, they may get better, not because I've given them a placebo, but just because they would have gotten better anyway. Mm -hmm. Again, common cold gives you a good example of that. So if you want to know what the placebo effect is, you have to subtract out from it any change that you would get if you hadn't given the person anything at all. And in that very first meta-analysis that I did with uh, Guy Saperstein, that's exactly what we aimed to do. Our interest was in looking at the placebo effect, so we not only looked at what was the response to the medication and what was the response to the placebo, but also how much change was there if people did nothing at all, if they didn't even take a placebo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at one point you say <laughs> that a lot of these studies on, um, in, on depression show only about a two-point two improvement on the Hamilton depression scale. And that is, you could basically get that improvement just by answering on the questionnaire that you got a better night's sleep that night. And uh, But I think what you were trying to say is that that would still show up as st statistically significant improvement. Is is that how, did I understand that correctly? Well, pretty much. Um the Hamilton Depression Scale, first of all, it's not something that the patient fills out. It's something that the doctor uh, fills out. It's a physician-rated uh, uh, scale. And uh, you can get up to 53 points on it. Uh, scores can range from zero to, to 53 points. And you can get a six-point difference by changes in sleep patterns because that's one of the symptoms it measures. And it measures it in three different uh, questions. And you get zero, one, or two points 
on each of those questions. So if you have enough changes in your sleep patterns in terms of uh, falling asleep, not waking up in the middle of the night, um, not getting up too early, that can give you up to a six-point change just on the basis of sleep and not on with ignoring all other uh, uh, symptoms. Now, I, I use that as an example just to point out that a two-point difference is very, very uh, small. It's not something that's meaningful in anybody's life. There's an organization in the UK called <clears throat> the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. The acronym is NICE, N-I-C-E. And uh, NICE sets the treatment guidelines for the National Health Service here. And they've established a three-point difference between antidepressant and placebo as a criterion for clinical significance, for clinical meaningfulness. And that's different than statistical significance. Statistical sure. significance doesn't tell you any in and of itself. It doesn't tell you anything about about how meaningful an effect is. You can have a very small effect, but if you're um, if you have a large enough sample of your the number of people you've studied is large enough, it'll turn out to be statistically uh, significant. If I did a study, for example, on smiling, and let's imagine that I had 500,000 subjects, and I found that smiling increases life expectancy by 10 seconds. Now, with 500,000 subjects, that 10-second difference is going to be statistically significant. It's just clinically meaningless. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean anything in terms of uh, anything that anybody would really care about. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's move on to some of the more um, important uh, claims or maybe more mind-blowing to me claims in your book that this uh, this chemical imbalance theory, you went from sort of a doubter at the beginning of your studies to a disbeliever. And you found that there's really no evidence to support this idea of the chemical imbalance theory. You know, we all hear that if you're depressed, you need to take an antidepressant because there's something wrong with your brain chemistry. And the, the serotonin um, that you, that you uh, get from taking the drug is going to help restore the balance. But t tell me a little bit about um, things like you mentioned thyroid hormone and benzodiazepines, which are, um, I can't remember what kind of drug those are, but also opiates. Um, and those all have uh, similar effects on depression as these things that are called SS serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, how did you come across that data? Well, some of it I found in, uh, there's an excellent book on uh, the chemical imbalance theory uh, written by Joanna Moncrief. Uh, it's called The Chemical Cure, and I would recommend it to you uh, for reading. And uh, so I found some of it that way. Some of it I found in, in our very first uh, meta-analysis uh, when we were looking at the drugs that had been evaluated to treat uh, depression. Some of them were drugs that are not antidepressants at all. Benzodiazepines are uh, tranquilizers. They had looked at lithium for major depression. They'd look at a, they'd look at a, they looked at a thyroid uh, medication, and uh, the data for those drugs looked almost identical to the data for the antidepressants. So you get the same response, the same uh, benefit uh, taking those drugs as you do from taking antidepressants. And there's even an antidepressant that has been uh, approved by French regulators. It's called TNF-teen. Um, it's not an SSRI. It's an SSRE. 
Um, that's a, a serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake enhancers instead of a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's supposed to do exactly the opposite of what the SSRIs do. The SSRIs are supposed to um, increase serotonin in the brain. Tianeptine is supposed to decrease serotonin in, in the brain, and yet it has the exact same effect on depression as the SSRIs do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the drug contains in terms of its effects on serotonin or other neurotransmitters, the effects on depression are the same. And that's one of the reasons, there are other data showing this as well, for, as well, for uh, believing that uh, the um, serotonin theory just doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. And I would also think that that would hint towards uh, a stronger uh, idea that, that this really is a placebo that's, uh, effect that's happening. If you give someone... Uh, a bunch of different drugs, not someone, but in trials, and they all have the similar effects. I would think that that would um, hint that something else is going on here besides just the effects on the brain. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, you also bring up in the book, at first, when I started reading, I was a little bit skeptical about this, how powerful the placebo effect could be. But you go into more detail into sort of the history of the placebo effect and the examples you give are just pretty amazing. One example you gave was this uh, this idea of a surgery placebo where people actually had knee surgery and one group got a fake knee surgery and the other got a real <laughs> knee surgery and they had similar outcomes. Um, can, do you remember any other examples of the placebo effect that, that were especially powerful to you? Well, in terms of placebo surgery, there have been a, lot, a number of trials in, 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 in involving sham surgery. Uh, the first ones were done on uh, a surgical procedure that used to be used for the treatment of uh, angina. It was called mammary ligation, uh, and that was all the way back in the 1950s. They, the surgical procedure seemed to have a big effect in easing angina. Uh, they were reporting success rates of 80%. And then they compared it to a placebo control where they cut people open, sewed them back up, but didn't do the surgical intervention. And what they found was that there was no difference between the real surgery and the sham surgery. Now, many years later, that's what they also found for this knee surgery. There have also been uh, powerful placebo effects shown with sham surgery for um, Parkinson's disease, where they do um, cell implants in the brain. And if you if you look at patients who are given the sham operation, where you open the skull but you don't implant the uh, the cell in the brain, you find that uh, you get considerable improvement there as well. Wow! Wow! Incredible. Um, what has it been like after you published your data, um, getting feedback from colleagues, and why do you think that so many people are so resistant to this idea that uh, antidepressants could just be a placebo effect? Well, there's a raging controversy right now, and, and uh, that's already a big change because when I started in this field, there wasn't any controversy uh, at all to, to speak of. Um, there, first of all, people are resistant to change, mm-hmm. um, but there are also some interests that would make it hard to change. You know, years and years ago, decades ago, psychiatrists used to do psychotherapy. Now they prescribe medicine and 
Many of them, uh, most psychiatrists don't do psychotherapy. They prescribe medicine, mostly antidepressants. If you take that away, what are they going to do? It's a threat to them. It's a threat to the field of psychopharmacology. So, of course, they're going to be very resistant to looking at these data and uh, to it's going to be hard for them to accept the idea that they have been mistaken and that these pills are not as effective as they thought they were. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're coming up on the end of our conversation here as far as time. And I'd, could you address for people who might be listening to this and um, currently taking an antidepressant, what would be a, a recommendation? And are there other options that are that actually have a real effect that, that would be a better choice? What, what do you recommend to those people who might be listening? The first thing I would recommend is don't just stop taking your antidepressant. There are a number of reasons for that. The major uh, uh, reason is that uh, about 20% of people who are on antidepressants, if they just stop taking it, they go into withdrawal. They have a withdrawal uh, effect, um, just like with addictive drugs. Um, so you can't just stop on your own. Second thing I would say is that if you're taking an antidepressant, if it seems to be working for you, if you're not being bothered by the side effects, um, then maybe you should just continue taking it. Mm-hmm. After all, what do you care whether it's a placebo effect or a drug effect? If, on the other hand, you either aren't getting enough of an effect, benefit from it, or you're concerned about the health risks and the side effects, you might consider speaking with your doctor about uh, looking for an alternative and about tapering off of the medication and trying to find some other way to deal with the depression. There are many things that work. Uh, there are many things that work as well as antidepressants. Uh, my colleagues and I have done another meta-analysis that was published uh, about a year or so ago um, in which we compared the effects of antidepressants with psychotherapy, with physical exercise, with acupuncture. Um, and what we found is that all of these different treatments were equally effective. Mm. They have gave you the same response. So there are many ways of coping with depression. They're all just a little bit better than placebo. Um, some of them, like psychotherapy, have a particular benefit in terms of long-term effect, preventing relapse. Physical exercise may do the same as well from the studies that have been done so far uh, on it. Uh, so consider speaking with your doctor about uh, trying some of these alternatives. Mm-hmm. Well, Irving Kirsch, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and I really appreciate you writing this fascinating book. Uh, it was a joy to read, and I know that our listeners will gain a lot from this interview and find it fascinating as well. So thanks very much for being part of the show. It's been my pleasure. It's nice speaking with you. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.